Our speakers this afternoon, Karen Corsano and Daniel Williman, are independent scholars. A native of Boston, Ms. Corsano received a BA from Emanuel College and an MSL degree from the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto. Until her recent retirement, she was a senior programmer for the Nurses' Health Study at the Channing Laboratory in Boston. Mr. Williman received a PhD at the Pontifical Institute in Toronto and retired in 2007 as professor of Latin and history at Binghamton University in New York. They've previously collaborated on studies of 14th century medieval Latin archives and libraries and their recent work in archival materials, including journals and letters, has led to their latest publication, John Singer Sargent and His Muse, Painting, Love, and Loss, of which they will speak to us today. So please join me in welcoming Karen Corsano and Daniel Williman. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. And thanks to the Athenaeum staff for the perfect arrangements here. We are going to talk today about Sargent's life during World War I. That is the period of Sargent's art that has been the least well known and appreciated. But we, will, we expect that that will begin to change in July with the publication of the final volume of the complete paintings, Figures and Landscapes, 1914 to 1925. Sargent's close friend, Evan Charteris, wrote this in his biography. The war was entirely outside his ken, and so involved with consequences and questions of which he was entirely ignorant, that he seemed merely conscious of being rather isolated. It was as if his imagination had suffered a complete breakdown. We hold a contrary opinion. And we hope to show you today how passionately and intensely Sargent's imagination was at work through the five years of his war, 1914 to 1919. We wrote a book with the title John Singer, Sargent and His Muse. That title implies a promise, doesn't it? A promise to explain the art with a view of the artist's personal and emotional life. And we delivered on that promise just as well as we could but how to know Sargent's inner life? He was a very private person, incapable of public speaking, and even among friends he would not talk about himself. He considered that boring and rude. He never wrote a memoir, and his letters, though they sometimes tell what he has seen or what he intends to do, rarely say anything about his feelings. We had to read the, the artist's personal life from what he did, and especially what he painted. And that is how we intend to tell the story of Sargent and the Great War. When we talk about Sargent's uh, emotions in art, we necessarily start with his family, his slightly crippled spinster sister Emily, and his much younger married sister Violet Ormond, and his nephews and nieces, especially young Rosemarie Ormond, the muse in our book. Rosemarie grew up on the continent with her French grandmother, and Sargent gave the whole family a great annual treat when he got it together for his alpine painting expeditions in the last half dozen summers before the Great War. 
he felt an increasing delight in the person and personality of his niece, Rosemary, and he expressed that delight in picture after picture, culminating in Nonchaloir and the formal portrait, Rosemary Ormond. In 1912, their last summer holiday in the Alps, Sargent painted the pink dress. It's an antique dress from the crinoline 1850s, such as Rosemary's grandmother would have worn. Rosemary was 18 and already being courted by Robert, the son of the eminent art historian André Michel, who was a longtime professional acquaintance of Sargent's, and the concurrent approval of both families made a marriage seem inevitable. It happened a year later, August 6, 1913, and Sargent was Rosemary's witness for the civil ceremony. He truly wanted her to have the happiness of a perfect match. That summer, for the first time in seven years, Sargent would not be painting Rosemary in an alpine scene, and he chose to visit other venues, the Tyrol and, the La and Lago di Garda. On the way back to his home in London, he stopped in Paris for a couple of days' visit with Rosemary and Robert. She was ecstatically happy, and that was a great joy to Sargent. Summer 1914. Robert and Rosemarie and the London Normans planned a brief holiday together on the coast of Normandy at the end of July. Sergeant wrote Rosemarie his regrets and explained that he was just on his way to the Tyrol to paint in the mountain air again. Higher than the Samplon, he exclaimed. It was a party of six that set off for that Tyrolean jaunt, Sergeant and his indispensable valet, Nicola d'Inverno, Colonel Armstrong of the British Army, retired, an amateur in watercolor, the English painter Adrian Stokes, and his Austrian painter wife Marianne, and her maid. The Stokeses were coming from their home in Munich. As on a typical Edwardian summer picnic when someone always forgets the cucumber sandwiches, everybody forgot their passports. None of Sargent's party had a passport, actually. They had never needed one in 19th century Europe, where they were native citizens. Baedeker did warn that sketching or photographing in the neighborhood of Austrian fortifications is sometimes attended by unpleasant consequences, and Sargent had arranged for the permits he needed to paint near the Italian border. He was in contact with a boyhood friend, Karl Maldoner, who met him at the rail station. He wrote Sister Emily that he recognized Maldona right away after almost 50 years, even though Sargent said he looked older. <laughs> the party gathered at the Seisser Alpenhaus, pleasantly situated at 7,000 feet, a 45-bed inn, bed and board at seven shillings a day, postal service in summer, a chapel and alpine garden. That's Baedeker again. But they found almost nothing to paint there. It rained or snowed every afternoon, and then the war arrived. The painters must have heard and read the rumors of coming war. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated in Sarajevo on 28 June, three weeks before Sargent boarded his boat train to Dieppe. But Sargent was oblivious of international affairs and of politics, even local politics. He once said that any such interest was antithetical to art. His nearest acquaintance with war was his father's passionate advocacy of the Union cause in the Civil War when he was a boy 
and he had not the slightest notion of military realities. All that began to change when Austria declared war on Serbia on 28 July and the border slammed shut behind the painting party. Without a passport, a foreign national, even a citizen of the neutral United States, could not get out into neutral territory or even board a train. Tourists were leaving in panicky confusion, hotels were closing, and, tran and transport was commandeered by the army. But the painters were undeterred in their resolve to paint in the Tyrol. As soon as they could get some pack animals, they headed for a different location and found a little inn still open in Kolfushk, the most picturesque point in this Dolomite region, as their Baedeker told them. Sargent settled down to paint and worry about the ones he loved in Paris and London, to paint and brood about young men dying. The party received no mail in August or September. In that time, the only news they read was in the Austrian papers. Colonel Armstrong felt that he should return to England and left at the end of August. The painters at the little inn in Kolfushk were harassed by soldiers who examined their papers and carried off all their paintings and art gear to be probed at headquarters in Innsbruck. The Tyrol was devoutly Catholic, and so were the Stokeses, and Sargent was alert to the emotional values in the, in the religious art around him. At the end of September, when the weather got too cold in Kolfushk, Karl Maldoner offered the painters his old house, lower down in the Pustertal at St. Lorenzen. Then they got word that Colonel Armstrong had been arrested and was imprisoned in the fortress of Trent. Friend in need Maldoner provided the car and his solid Austrian respectability, and Sargent, with his fluent German and the ribbon of his decoration from the Kaiser in his buttonhole, managed to persuade the Austrians to expel Armstrong as an enemy alien instead of shooting him as a spy. Finally, he received some letters from Rose Marie through her grandmother in Switzerland, and so he knew that she was taking Red Cross training and that her Robert had been mobilized and gone to the front. He told her not to worry if she got no letters from Robert. Here as well, officers' wives are having to manage without news from their husbands who are not yet over the border. How's that for a totally neutral mind and heart? Robert was killed on the Soissons front on 13 October, and Sargent got the news a week later. He wrote urging Rosemary to go to, to, go to the London Ormond family, but she answered that she was a Frenchwoman now and that she would take up her martyred husband's service to France and the suffering people of France. Sargent wrote back at the end of October, Ma chère Rosemary, I see from your letter all vibrant with noble emotion and courage, that you are valiant in your grief, and that gives me joy. Stokes later wrote that Sargent's equanimity was disturbed by none of this. That's exactly how Sargent wanted to appear, reserved Victorian that he was. But we do know Sargent's state of mind, his pessimism and helpless worry from what he painted, cemeteries, iron crosses, wayside crucifixes, and more crucifixes. In this one, the crucifix dominates the white interior wall and overhangs a deep embrasure through which bright autumn sunlight shines on clean, drying linen. 
The cross and the corpus are hung with votive symbols of fruitfulness and hope, now desiccated, an uneven string of pomegranate seeds like the blood-red beads of a rosary, dried corn cobs and pomegranates. Last Palm Sunday's withered olive branches, a mass of dried hydrangeas. This genre scene, the man in front of the large man of sorrows crucifix is working on a smaller crucifix, the hammer in his mouth, ready to perform the crucifixion again. The little girl embracing the confining balusters like Magdalene at the foot of the cross. Just visible behind the barrier, two little boys are playing at war. One has the other in a headlock. And this one, below the looming crucifix in this old chapel turned farmhouse, we watch the family offering thanks quietly and anxiously before midday meal. No news from their young soldiers. With the news that Rosemary had lost her husband, Sargent made a titanic effort to get back to London himself, with a stop in Paris on the way, an absolute necessity. He worked by telegram to persuade the U.S. Embassy in Vienna to issue him a passport and arrange the necessary exit permits, while his trusty factotum, Nicola d'Inverno, brought his luggage and paintings to Austrian Trieste. Karl Maldoner provided his car again for the 300-mile journey to Vienna, and Sargent got his passport there on Thursday, 19 November. A passport good for just one week. The U.S. Embassy was bending over backward to be neutral. But Sargent, whose acquaintance with Bradshaw's Continental Railway Guide had begun when he was in pinafores, rose to the challenge. Almost 400 miles by rail, including the scenic Zemmering Railway, brought him to Austrian Trieste on the 21st, and the next day the steam packet landed him at neutral Venice, where his trunks and paintings were consigned to the care of Thomas Cook and Sons. He continued by rail through Milan and Turin to Geneva. Thanks again to that rapidly melting passport, he was able to leave neutral Switzerland and continue by rail through Dijon to Paris, Gare Lyon. If he was lucky with his connecting trains in Italy and France, he had two days to visit in Paris with Rosemarie and the André Michels, if not just one day, 26 November. Sergeant being sergeant, no one will ever know what they said. Rosemarie gave her uncle a brave goodbye at Gare Saint-Lazare on the 27th, and he was at La Havre that afternoon with an expired passport. The American consul provided him a fresh one, and he landed in Portsmouth two days later. Sargent returned as a stranger to a strange London because his experience of the past four months had been so different from that of his friends in England. Most of them were engaged with the war, passionately or dutifully, the men joining the forces, the women rolling bandages and organizing benefit teas, concerts, and art auctions, his great friend Henry James was outraged by American neutrality and the news of German atrocities, finally by the sinking of the Lusitania on May 7, 1915. He renounced his American citizenship and became a British subject in July. He did not understand why Sargent would not do the same, but we do. Sargent was proud to be an American, which meant then legally neutral.
He was convinced of the justice of the Allied cause and emotionally tied to France through Rose Marie. On the other hand, he had such a deep respect for German culture as an integral part of European civilization that he could not hate the Germans. He tried to send back the order of merit he had received from the Kaiser and to resign from the Prussian and Bavarian academies using American diplomatic channels. The London consulate wrote on his behalf, Sargent makes no criticism of the German government or the German societies, but merely resigns because he is no longer in sympathy with German aims. Even that soft wording proved too belligerent for the insistently neutral U.S. State Department, and his request was rejected. And he was billed for the telegram telling him so. (laughs) The American Academy of Arts and Letters named Sargent America's foremost painter, and he was the head of the British Committee of the Panama Pacific Exposition, set to open in San Francisco in in February 1915. And so he was expected to send an important selection of his own work. Despite the war, he was able to show photos of his BPL murals and 13 oil paintings. And here they all are. Five of the paintings were loaned by American owners. Almost all the others were from his own collection in London. Five were portraits, and they were personal favorites of his. He called Madame X probably the best thing I've ever done. The other four were not only objects of his artistic pride, but portraits he had painted with pleasure of sitters to whom he was very close. His great longtime friend, Henry James, done for his 70th birthday, the celebrated American comic actor, Joseph Jefferson, whom he had painted in 1890, at his trophy home in Buzzards Bay. Ambrogio Raffaele, the Italian painter who had introduced and accompanied Sargent to the Alpine locales where he had painted so happily in the previous decade. And Rosemarie. It was as if he wanted to get these particular friends to safety far away from the war. Sargent donated drawings to art auctions and benefit publications and he accepted the role of prize artist for a 10,000-pound donation to the Red Cross by Hugh Lane, the sitter to be named later. But then Lane went down on the Lusitania, and the choice of sitter was left to the Irish National Gallery, which dithered over the decision. For the rest, Sargent kept busy drawing charcoal portraits, mugs as he called them, often of young gentlemen in their new officers' uniforms, Younger acquaintances were enlisting, like young, the young art collector Philip Sassoon. Sargent's oldest nephew, Jean-Louis Ormond, aged 20, was on active duty with the neutral Swiss Army. Some of Sargent's closest painter friends went bravely to war. The de Glens went to France to volunteer at a military hospital, Jane as a nurse and Wilfred as an X-ray operator. Jane painted portraits for sale to benefit the hospital. Wilfred's pictures of the patients and staff in the sunny hospital grounds remind us of the Alpine expeditions that they so often had shared with Sargent. Later, Wilfred was attached to a British team serving with the Italian army and sketched gun emplacements along the Austrian front. 
He barely escaped with his landscapes when the Italians were routed at Caporetto in November 1917. Emily's neighbor and good friend, Henry Tonks, had trained as a doctor before committing to art as his profession. He volunteered and was assigned to a surgical hospital where he began to record in paint and pastels the details of facial wounds as a scientific aid to the developing field of reconstructive surgery. His, his sketches captured the skin tones, mass, shape, and color that were still beyond the reach of the camera and served as an important part of the medical preparation and record of the surgery. And Rosemary stepped up to serve as a volunteer nurse in a hospital in the Parisian suburb of Reilly, where blinded French soldiers were trained in useful crafts. The women volunteers performed the work of practical nursing there, and they also helped teach the daily skills like washing, shaving, and eating that the men had to relearn by touch. They called each man by his family name. They read aloud in the workshops, the daily newspapers, and whatever prose and poetry the men chose to hear. And in a lower voice, on a bench in the park, they would read a man the letters of his wife or sweetheart. Rosemary found at Ree the cause that buoyed her spirits and filled up the empty days of her widowhood with a joyful, useful duty. In her letters, she sang her homage to the bravery and nobility of her blind men. An etching by Paul Renoir, Learning to be Blind, shows a white flock of nurses guiding a line of new men at Reilly. Here is Rosemary in her nurse's whites. In the middle of January 1916, during her last visit to England, Sargent saw his muse in a new, almost saintly character, the young widow devoted to a generous cause, her mourning turned into a loving dedication to her blinded soldiers. Sargent finished the next installment of the mural cycle for the Boston Public Library as far as he could in his Fulham Road studio. He's usually remembered as a portrait painter of the rich and famous, but he regarded portraiture as the lowest form of painting, making homely people handsome to please their family, he said. Higher on his ranking were figure and landscape painting, things like El Jaleo and the splendid watercolors of his Alpine holidays. Highest of all, in his opinion, was public decoration. So Sargent considered his murals at the BPL the most important commission in his life and he worked on them off and on for almost 30 years. The subject of that commission was the progress of religion, conceived by Sargent as a pageant of symbolic images evoking the development of Judeo-Christian culture within Western civilization. The canvases of the Jewish and Christian walls were installed in 1895 and 1903, but the ceiling lunettes and the Arch of the Virgin Mary were still to be installed and the long east wall over the stairway was still blank. Unrestricted German submarine warfare was briefly suspended, and in March 1916, 100 years ago this week, Sargent took his chance to get to neutral America. Just as he sailed, the Germans declared that ships in the waters around Great Britain were again legitimate targets, and then Sargent could not insist that his sisters follow him to the peaceful side of the Atlantic. For four months, he labored over details of his BPL paintings and the moldings around them, 
until the summer heat and the suggestion of Isabella Stewart Gardner persuaded him to try a mountain holiday in the Canadian Rockies. With one guide and his valet, in snow and mud, sleeping in tents, eating canned food warmed over campfires, this trip was not like his painting vacations in the Alps. Back in Boston, Sargent finally installed the murals he had brought from England just before Christmas 1916. The arch adjacent to the Christian South Wall was dedicated to the Virgin Mary. They and the three Christian sailing lunettes are a toss-up of familiar, traditional, originally medieval imagery. The Jewish lunettes were new conceptions, Gog and Magog, Israel and the Law, and the Messianic Age. The long east wall was still blank, but Sargent was developing definite designs for that space between the Jewish history on the north wall and medieval Christianity on, his south, on the south. He took his idea of perfect Christianity from Ernest Renan's Life of Jesus, and he planned to crown the series of murals with a landscape picture of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as recounted in the Gospel of Matthew, the message of peace and compassion by a Jew who had gone beyond the law before there was any such thing as a church. That scene would be flanked by symbolic representations of synagogue and church, based on medieval models like this pair in Rance. In 1916, the spaces, the spaces that these allegories would occupy were marked with frames veiled with fabrics that he had designed, woven with cherubim and menorahs and hearts at the stream. Sargent stayed on in America, escaping the war with a series of good excuses. He embarked on a contract for classical decoration in the new Museum of Fine Arts. When the U.S. declared war on Germany in April 1917, Sargent was in Florida painting John D. Rockefeller for a big donation to the Red Cross. And he added a visit to his friends, the brothers Charles and James Deering in Miami. They were building a beautiful vacation home called Vizcaya, and Sargent re rejoiced to paint its gardens and balustrades. He wrote, It combines Venice and Frascati and Aranguez and all that one is likely to never see again. Hence this linger longering. Then they took him fishing in the Gulf of Mexico as guest on their houseboat named Nepente, forgetfulness. But for him there was no forgetfulness. He was fretting again over his loved ones, his sisters and his niece and nephews in London, and Rosemary in Paris, all enduring air raids. In October, he went to the White House to paint the president, for the Irish had settled on Woodrow Wilson as the sitter for the Hugh Lane benefit purse of 10,000 pounds. <clears throat> the winter dragged on with the war in Europe looking muddier and bloodier and as uncertain as ever the American troops not yet in action, Sargent's loved ones still in danger, and himself, in his own view, just fiddling at heart in Boston. Then in March 1918, news came in the Boston Globe and the New York Times that long-distance guns were shelling Paris, even on Palm Sunday. At the end of the week, the news was even worse. A terribly accurate shell from an incredible 70 miles away had hit a, a, a church in Paris on Good Friday, March 29th, killing scores, mainly women and children. Sergeant read in the Boston Globe, 
Rescue parties at work in a church which was struck yesterday by a shell from a German long-range gun have found more bodies. It is known that 54 women were killed. The shells struck the north side of the church, bringing down part of the roof and opening a breach 12 feet high and 20 feet wide. Nearly all of the debris fell inward upon the heads of the worshippers 60 feet below. The edifice is now a heart-rending sight. The enormous mass of stone, crumbled into all shapes and sizes, lies in the middle of the nave. The beauty of that church's musical services, which were sung unaccompanied, attracted many music lovers. Sergeant must have feared but did not know that this was news about Rosemary. Then a cable came confirming his worst fear, Rosemary tuée au bombardement de Paris. The church was Saint-Gervais, near the Hotel de Ville. On Good Friday, there was no mass, only the tenebrae service from noon to three to mark the hours of Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. And after that, the singers of Saint-Gervais were to perform music of Palestrina and Victoria for the benefit of the war wounded. Rosemary had bought her ticket, and she died there, crushed under the stones of the church vault, before the singing could begin. Sergeant spoke for once clearly of his personal loss. She was very young and one of the most beautiful and attractive women I ever knew, the most charming girl who ever lived. He immediately set about getting back to his family, but he had to wait till the end of April because his ship, RMS Baltic, was now a troop ship and had to wait for a convoy. Before he left London, Sergeant was... Before he left Boston, thank you. Boston. Sergeant was contacted by the British War Memorials Committee about a commission to paint at the front in France. The War Artists Project was designed to preserve an official collective memory of the war. From the inception of the scheme in 1916, more than 90 artists of all stylistic schools had been commissioned. Sergeant was wanted for one of the large monumental paintings one that should suggest the fusion of British and American forces. In London in May, he busied himself with a third Red Cross portrait, Mrs. Percival Duxbury and her daughter, and pondered whether he should try to paint in the, in the active war zone. The fighting still showed no signs of winding down. He was 62 and overweight, and he wondered, would I have the nerve to look, not to speak of painting? I have never seen anything the least horrible outside my studio. In mid-May, a letter from the Prime Minister, Lloyd George himself, twisted his arm. I support the suggestion that you should execute one of these large paintings, the subject being, I understand, one in which British and American troops are engaged in unison. Sargent had found two things that he needed, a call to a wartime task that he was uniquely qualified to perform, and a way to get across the channel in wartime. He had to get to Paris to visit Rosemary's grave and give his condolences to the André Michels. His agreement was likely made easier by the fact that his good friend, the painter Henry Tonks, had also been chosen. Tonks' commission was to paint hospitals and dressing stations. In June, the two artists were attached to the Guards Division and on 2 July, in British officers' uniforms without badges of rank, they crossed together to France on a troop ship. 
Upon landing in France, Sargent was brought to General Haig's headquarters at Boulogne, where he was welcomed by his young friend, Sir Philip Sassoon, Haig's aide-de-camp. Then on 13 July, the artists went up together to the line of battle. Tonks wrote about his own work. I have gone about much and seen much. We live in the middle of a terrible din of artillery. The other day I motored to the battlefront and saw what I wanted of the wounded. I find work very difficult and only seem to be collecting notes. And sure enough, back in England, Tonks assembled his sketches from the field to create an advanced dressing station, France 1918. That canvas is crowded with vignettes of wounded men being treated or transported or waiting against a backdrop of desolation and shellfire. This was not a single scene that Tonks had witnessed, but rather a conflation of many notes of the, of the wounded and of dressing stations that he had sought out over his months at the front. Sargent set about painting with his usual concentration, but what he painted behind the lines shows how impossible it was for him to depict the violence. He did soldiers relaxing, sleeping, bathing, and this one, kilted and trousered soldiers in unison stealing apples. <laughs> but the peacefulness of these pictures is misleading. The air was filled with the roar of shellfire. The artists bivouacked in trenches and blown out buildings. You have probably seen Tonk's cartoon of Sargent in a blasted landscape dotted with bomb craters, shell bursts, and distant aerial dogfights, maintaining his usual weighty composure. Tonks wondered if Sargent even knew what damage a shell could do, but Sargent was thinking constantly about just that. They went together to Arras, where they spent two or three weeks, Tonks painted scenes of domestic upheaval, houses with their front walls blown away, a dressing station in a bomb church crypt. Sargent produced pictures of destruction that had come from above. His ruined cellar at Arras shows arches still intact in a wrecked interior. This one shows an abandoned caisson in the rubble that fills the space below the arches of an old cloister. A street in Arras shows the front wall of a fine home with a hole smashed through it, revealing a carriage still upright under the collapsed stone and timbers. Blasé Scots guards who have seen it all relax along the wall. The nave in the ruined cathedral Arras stands open to the sun. A clear blue sky shines behind the remaining standing arch. The cathedral vault litters the floor. On 20 August, Sassoon, Sassoon wrote home, Sargent has been doing lovely things, but he has not attempted to embark upon his big picture or even to make studies for it. How he wishes he'd never been sent out to do it. It hangs over him like a sword of Damocles. The very next day, Sargent found a scene that he wanted to paint large, and it was not a scene of Yanks and Tommies cooperating, but of blinded soldiers. Tonks remembered, after tea we heard that on the Doolins Road at the core dressing station at Le Bac du Sud, there were a good many gassed cases, so we went there. The dressing station was situated on the road and consisted of a number of huts and a few tents. 
Gassed cases kept coming in, led along in parties of about six by an orderly. They sat or lay down on the grass. There must have been several hundred, evidently suffering a great deal, chiefly, I fancy, from their eyes, which were covered up by a piece of lint. Sergeant was very struck by the scene and immediately made a lot of notes. A little later he asked me if I would mind his making this essentially medical subject his, and I told him I did not in the least mind. He worked hard and made a number of pencil and pen sketches, which formed the basis of the oil painting known as Gast. This was the scene that became the masterpiece of Sargent's campaign. It moved him more than any other in his war experience. Nature had set the stage perfectly. The weather on 21st August was magnificent and hot. The moon turned full that night, and so it rose shortly before the sun set at about 8 p.m. Sergeant filled pages with studies of the blindfolded men, notes of their postures and motions and kit, details of that summer evening in the open French countryside. These blinded soldiers were the models that visually re recreated for him the splendid, heroic, blinded soldiers Rosemarie had told him about and to whom she had dedicated her, her years as a widow. But he despaired of finding the right picture to fulfill his commission. He called it the damned portion that is expected of me. Sergeant described his difficulty to Charteris. The program of British and American troops working together has weighed heavily upon me, for though historically and sentimentally the thing happens, the naked eye cannot catch it in the act. The nearer to danger, the fewer and more hidden the men. The more dramatic the situation, the more it becomes an empty landscape. But he kept looking, and on October 10th he saw a scene that at the time seemed to answer the requirements of his commission. He wrote, I have seen what I wanted, Cro roads crammed with troops on the march. It is the finest spectacle the war affords, as far as I can make out. And this is the scene he sketched of masked soldiers. American troops are marching up to the line out of a fog of dust and steam flanked by a railway that carries heavy guns under a, under a banner that may have once proclaimed a welcome, now flapping in shreds. On the right, relieved British troops are marching back to their reserve bivouac. Sergeant worked up this draft in oil that is now in the MFA. Sergeant was back in London at the end of October, eager to finish his War Memorials Commission. After the months of fretting about finding the kind of scene he'd been sent out to paint, he decided that the picture of the blinded soldiers would be his big contribution. When they saw his preliminary sketches, the War Memorials Committee recognized a masterpiece in the making. Henry Tonks, who had been there on the Doolands Road, assured the committee that, dramatic as it was, Gast was no work of fiction, but a good representation of what we saw, as it gives a sense of the surrounding peace. The scale and proportions of the space that the picture would fill were panoramic, seven and a half by 20 feet. Sergeant got to work, as he always worked, alone with no assistance. He organized his notes and sketches into a compelling composition that depicts two lines of soldiers, their eyes bandaged, moving slowly toward the field dressing station, whose taut guy ropes stretch in from the right side of the frame. The point of view is low, 
and the upper quarter of the canvas is empty except for the evening light and a few airplanes and exploding shells far off in the serene expanse of sky. A line of ten soldiers and an orderly coming from the left of the frame are the focus of the picture, their khaki battle dress glorified by the ruddy gold sunset behind the artist. Each man has his hand on the backpack or shoulder of the one in front of him. The third man in line has just stubbed his left toe on the duckboard. He has not yet learned to be blind, so he cannot tell by how much the pack of the man ahead rose how high the obstacle is, so he steps extra high to be sure. From the right-hand rear of the picture, another eight blindfolded soldiers and two surgeons approach the tent. In the eastern distance, the rising moon hangs milky and featureless. In the background, visible between the legs, men in blue and red colors are playing football. One on the right has just launched a long kick. To uh, uh, To the left, a man leans slightly forward, hands at his hips in a goalkeeper's stance. That was no fiction either. Sargent had sketched those football players on the Doolins Road and by painting them in legible detail, he was alluding to A.E. Hausman's poem, Is My Team Plowing, from 1896. He was sure the viewers of the picture would know it. It was in the Oxford Book of English Verse. A dead man questions his living friend about the things he loved when alive. Their second exchange goes, Is football playing along the river shore, with lads to chase the leather, now I stand up no more? Aye, the ball is flying, the lads play heart and soul. The goal stands up, the keeper stands up to keep the goal. Once Gast was out of his studio, Sargent worked into the spring of 1919 to finish his Boston Public Library task. He had new energy for it because he had decided how he would do the images in those two curtained shrine frames, the medieval allegories of Jewish and Christian religion, synagogue, and church. He no longer thought that his summary of Western religion, Western civilization really, could climax with the triumph of Jesus preaching, his prophecy of love, peace, and compassion. He put that central landscape problem out of his mind and let other streams of thought braid with each other as he conceived and finally painted those two flanking pictures in his studio in Fulham Road. They are another war memorial, both universal and personal. Synagogue, the personification of Jewish religion, is a medieval allegorical image, and we have to be candid. That medieval Christian allegory is a mocking insult. Her attributes are a falling crown, broken staff, bandaged eyes, the symbols of her defeat, and the reason for it, that she didn't see the Messiah when he came. Public opinion in Boston and nationally, not only Jewish opinion, was outraged. Sargent must have known this picture would be trouble. He is not a religious bigot, and he was not a fool. Why did he go through with it? He was obsessed, we think, by the strange suitability of that image for his elegiac purpose, For Sargent, synagogue was not a deposed pretender, but a stricken queen, cherishing the tablets of the law in her powerful arm. As Sally Promey showed in her excellent study of Sargent Hall, 
Her profile is that of Michelangelo's Cumaean Sibyl, a noble seer who had predicted the Golden Age, the Messianic Age. And look at this. The Gospel of Matthew tells how, in Jerusalem, on the first Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. Here is that temple veil rent, and here are the stones of the temple vault piled on the floor. And here is church, not crowned but enthroned and surrounded by the symbols of the, of the Gospels, holding in her shrouded hands the symbols of the Eucharist, so far medieval iconography. But Sargent has mixed together the iconography of the church, the bride of Christ, with that of Pietà, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with her dead son on her lap. Sally Promi considered this the face of Rosemary, but it is stylized almost to anonymity. The figure, though, is that of a military nurse with her hospital sister's wimple and a military greatcoat. So this is a war memorial, too. And what makes us sure of that is this early concept sketch where a soldier dead of wounds takes the place of Jesus. The great gray wall between those two allegories remained and remains blank. The Jewish controversy was raging in the papers, and it had become simply impossible for Sargent to finish his program as he had planned it long ago with the Christian triumph of the Sermon on the Mount. But that was a relief to him. He could no longer see the progress of religion and of civilization that was to have reached a climax on that panel and now he did not have to paint it for reasons beyond his control. Although he had not fulfilled his last commission for the BPL and did not take his fee for it, he considered his library work at an end. That was the end of his personal war memorials, but duty called him to two more works of public remembrance. Soon after Sargent returned to London from France, the War Memorials Committee pressed him to paint a group portrait of the championship team, what should have been a photo shoot of 22 uniformed heroes in one frame. Sargent knew that this was artistic folly, but the committee insisted that it was his patriotic duty. He got as many generals as he could into his studio, sketched their uniforms on models, painted three from photographs because two had gone to their last reward and one to New Zealand. And he finally hunted this one down and he finally hunted this one down in Montreal in nineteen twenty one. The picture, some uh, some general officers of the Great War, was unveiled in the National Portrait Gallery in nineteen twenty two. It has also been called a still life with boots. <laughs> In 1920, he accepted another mural commission, a small one, for two, two panels in Harvard's Widener Library, commemorating the war service of Harvard men. Those panels were also completed in 1922. The right-hand panel depicts the marching soldiers that Sargent had found inspiring in France in 1918, but sanitized. 
Under a huge waving stars and stripes and a screaming American eagle, the clean-cut young American doughboys, still wearing the tropical hats of Pershing's Mexican expedition, cascade down the canvas from the blue sea that carried them over there, giving helping hands to three allegorical ladies, helmeted Britannia, robed in khaki, moribund Belgique with her broken sword, and gaunt, widowed Marianne in her liberty cap, clutching her orphan babe and her fallen husband's bayonet. The left-hand mural shows an American soldier striding forward on the battlefield, embracing victory in his right arm and in his left death who drags at his neck. Victory has the wings of that emblematic American eagle, and she brings a martyr's palm and a victor's laurel crown. Trumpeters above herald the triumph, one in khaki kilt and wreathed in the banderole, victory and death. Dead soldiers, including the German machine gunner, whom the Harvard lad has killed with his unmounted bayonet, sprawl underfoot. These murals are jammed with sentimental patriotic symbols. They have been disparaged as YMCA posters, and they do seem poised on the brink of parody. But they don't quite fall in. Their atmosphere is that of sympathetic and respectful, of a sympathetic and respectful memorial of aspiration and sacrifice. So a fitting end to Sargent's service in the Great War, his farewell to arms. In the last few years of his life, Sargent finished his decorations for the Museum of Fine Arts. That was another mountain holiday for him, this one on Mount Olympus. In the classical heavens he painted on those walls and vaults, his sitters are all immortal. Athena, the patroness of museums, the goddess who got the naming rights to this building, shields, sculpture, architecture, and painting from the awful scythe of time. And there is no war. Chiron takes young Achilles for a ride and a bit of archery, but they aren't shooting anybody, just showing off their splendid muscles. Thank you. Thank you.